Hello, people. Welcome to episode forty-three of Misfits. This is where I speak to the rebels, the outliers, and the unconventionals. Try to see things, start to see it, and to learn from them. Some of these people include Betty Lee, at the age of sixty year old, as a mom. You know, did her first solo around the world travel for an entire year. We have Taking Soon, who's architect behind the first multi-story residential and shopping mall in Singapore called the People's Park Complex. Derek Severs and a whole lot more. Today on this episode, we have Tainan. He is an entrepreneur, personal coach, minimalist nomad, as well as a former pickup artist and instructor, best known as Herbo in the game. By Neil Strauss, um, he's also the author of many best-selling books, including Superhuman by Habit and Forever Nomad. And for those of you who have heard of the idea, the name called Empire Housing, where you can share home ownership with your friends, well, he is the one that pioneered it, and actually have bought multiple homes, and in fact, an island well in Canada, and he also have homes in Hawaii, Budapest, Tokyo, and Las Vegas. So in this conversation, we spoke about what he learned as a pickup artist,、uh, how to make friends as an adult, how to give advice that people listen. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. All right, man. Okay, so I think、uh, a good place to start、um, would be your Twitter handle.、Uh, do you want to let us tell us the story of how you get your Twitter handle <laughs> at Tainan? Yeah. So. Uh, I forget what it was before, probably Tynan.com or something like that. And then around that time, I got Tynan.com. Oh yeah, I guess that's what it was. Sorry. So I got Tynan.com, and I thought, you know, if I can get Tynan.com, it shouldn't be that hard to get the Tynan Twitter handle. And I had looked for years, and some guy had it, and just never used it. Maybe it had been idle for five, six years. And so I emailed Twitter. I like, I tried all these different things, couldn't get anyone's attention. So I forget where I got this idea, but I ordered a custom-made cake where each cake was like a letter, so it spelled out Twitter. So it was this enormous, you know, cake. I needed three people to carry it, and we just walked to the Twitter offices because I was in San Francisco at the time. And I think they, the people in front, just sort of thought I was a delivery person or something. So they were like, "Oh, okay, yeah, go ahead, go in there." And so I set up this huge Twitter cake. And then I'm like, hey, actually, the reason I brought this is because I really want my handle. Here it is. And they were like, oh, oh, okay. And they kind of found someone for me, and they're like, all right, you know, no guarantees, but maybe he can help you. Write down what you want. And、uh, yeah, the next day I had it, and I made a video about it, and they were pretty pissed. I guess they didn't really notice that I was、uh, videoing it, so I had to. I think I took down the video, maybe. Oh my god. Okay, so. All these uh, 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 questions uh, pop up <laughs> as you come say the story, right? So first of all, is w- w- like like how did the idea came about to get the cake, and and I guess like do you just have too so much time on hand? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a lot of time for sure.、Uh, I guess I- I'm very stubborn when I have this idea that I'm going to do something. I will like I'll think really outside the box, try to figure out some way to get it done, and I, I really don't remember where the cake idea came from. But I just I guess I thought like, who's going to turn down a cake that has their business's name on it? Like it just you know, at least I'm going to get in the door with it. And I figured from there I could probably figure it out. But if it didn't work, who knows? I would have tried something else probably. I I think I I want to、um, touch a little bit on this monthly email that you sent out to. 
uh, I don't know whether it's your family or is it close friend or they're separate emails or they they are together. How did the idea came about and you know what is how does it look like? I mean, just sort of like uh, top level. Sure. Yeah. So it started because uh, I, I have a site called cruisesheet.com. That's kind of like the main thing I work on. And I have a few friends who are really into it. And so like they'd always ask me how it was going, what's going on. And I thought, well, I'll just send them a monthly email with what I did that month and, you know, kind of keep myself accountable as well. Uh, so I started doing that. And then my favorite thing about it was that by having it at a regular interval, it sort of made, it made me more aware of the time that stuff took. I'd say like, oh, actually I got a lot done this month or I felt productive, but I can read my last update that not that much has happened since then. So I thought it'd be useful to have it you know, as a more general life sort of email. And so uh, I just took a few people from that list. I think there's only four of us. And every month we write this this monthly email. And what does that monthly email entail? So it's different for each of us has sort of a different format. For me, I write uh, how was work, how was uh, my marriage, how were my friends, how was my family. Uh, and I think I just have like a miscellaneous section at the bottom with like, you know, stuff I'm excited about or something like that. So a lot of times, you know, maybe it'd be short. It'd be like, hey, I saw this many family members this month or something. And, you know, here they are. Uh, but just sort of things that are, I think are positives in my life. So if I'm aware of them every month, then, you know, maybe I'll I'll do a little bit more of them or notice when they're starting to do worse. Probably like an hour or two of your time, right? Like why, like after uh, uh, running the cruise sheet, I mean, I guess you're still running it. Um, What's the value of the continuing uh, doing the email for you? Yeah, I, I just think that sometimes, especially when I'm working a lot, I don't really, uh, I, I forget to take a higher level view of like, not just how this task go or how's this little project going, but like how'd my, how'd my month go? Uh, especially now I'm not traveling, obviously, but uh, before coronavirus, I would travel, I think last year I averaged a flight every three and a half days. So I'm like constantly moving and that, really makes it hard for me to keep track of time. Like sometimes people will say something, oh, remember last month we did this? And I think, oh, that feels like six months ago. So it helps me keep regular track of time, what I'm doing with that time and making sure I'm keeping up with stuff that's important. And I guess uh, one of the things that you still put in your Twitter handle um, is that you are a ex-professional pickup artist, uh, probably also a instructor as well. Um, do, well, how did, how did you became, what's the story behind that? It's a really long story, so I'll tell you the shorter version. I can expand if you want. But the gist of it was that I was really bad with girls, but also just socialization in general, uh, I would say, you know, all the way through college. So, you know, if I, I had some close friends. They were all nerds like me, and, you know, we could communicate. We got along well, and that was fine. But, like, talking to strangers, even, like, a friend of a friend, let alone, like, a female friend of a friend, uh, was just somewhere where I felt very uncomfortable. I had no idea what to do. You know, I, I you know, if I was in a, a group of strangers, even just a few of us chatting, maybe I like my face would turn red. I'd be really embarrassed. Um, and so, you know, I had a girlfriend in high school that I sort of got just through sheer luck and her own proactivity. Uh, and then there was this other girl in high school, right by the end of high school, who I had this massive crush on her. And I was too oblivious to realize that she also had a crush on me. So we're hanging out almost every day, the la you know, senior year summer. She would come pick me up in her car. We'd go around Austin, where I used to live. 
and it just never occurred to me that she liked me. I just thought like, oh, you know, this person I'm hanging out with every day, I wish I, I wish she liked me. And sort of the last day or one of the last days of summer vacation, we finally kissed and it was 100% because of her. And I thought, well, great, we've kissed. Now we're going to start dating. We'll probably get married. Like, this is how these things go. This is perfect. And the very next day, she went to college off in Chicago, you know, very far from Austin. But I saw that more as a speed bump than a roadblock. So I said, okay, well, that's fine. You know, I'm sure over vacation, you know, we'll kind of rekindle things. And, you know, college only lasts four years, all this sort of stuff. And then through a series of events, it became very clear that, well, it's probably very clear to everybody else, but increasingly clear to me that it was not going to happen. Like she started dating. She had a boyfriend. She moved in with him. She got engaged. And sort of around the point where she got engaged, I thought, I haven't really talked to this girl in years. She's engaged. Maybe this isn't going to happen. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I was really that oblivious. It's not, not an exaggeration. And around that time, uh, for the years preceding that, I was also a professional gambler. So I had all, I was in all these online forums for our internet gambling. And there's this one guy who had showed me the site about how to pick up girls. And of course I had no interest because I was so obsessed with this girl. And right about this time when I realized like, Hey, this isn't going to happen. I thought, what's that site? Well, I can't remember what it's called. And I was like searching all the things and I found it. It was called fastseduction.com. And you know, being a nerd and being on the internet, I just read all of it. I mean, I was up to like four or five in the morning reading everything. And it never occurred to me, I was just like kind of naive in general, but it never occurred to me that people exaggerate or lie online. I just sort of assumed everything these people were saying were true. So people would say things like, hey, you know, I went, I'm this big nerd. I went to this club. There was this model. I talked to her. Now she's my girlfriend. And I would think, well, that's, that's great. I didn't know that was possible. And so I just sort of took it at face value and I started reading all this stuff. Um, But I think most importantly, it made me realize that social skills, in particular dating or pickup, it was just a set of skills that I didn't have. Before that, I had always thought that it was something you were born into. And, And I just knew that I wasn't good. And I was like, well, I guess, you know, I'm not tall. I'm not good with women. Two things I can't change. Um, And so this changed my perception on it. And so I went really deep into it. I ended up joining this group in Austin of just these like 10 guys who were kind of similar, similar to me, like nerdy guys who were just a little further on that path. And it just sort of through this bizarre set of coincidences, I met and befriended the best pickup artists in the world. These guys from a company called Real Social Dynamics. At the time, they were working with Mystery to get this house called Project Hollywood. It was Dean Martin's old mansion. Can we in, sprinkle in a little bit of the uh, pilot story in that? Because I, I read some of your blog posts and it just sounds like, what is this even possible? <laughs> yeah, so so Tyler, his, his real name is Owen Cook. He went by Tyler Durden from, from Fight Club. And he was a guy who I could relate to because he was, you know, also a pretty average looking guy like I, like I am and uh, very nerdy. And just his method of communication really resonated with me. Um, and he was in it to like learn it, to like understand what was actually going on. Whereas other people were maybe more of like, you know, here's a pickup line or here's, it seemed a little more cheesy to me. So I really liked his stuff. And so I sort of ended up going to Chicago because I was on the precipice where I knew that if I got into this, I was going to get kind of ridiculously hardcore about it. And I was like, I need to know if this is real. Tyler is the person that I connect with the most. You know, he didn't know me, but I, th- I, I liked his stuff. So I, I said, I, I've got to go meet him. 
Yeah, and then I'm just going to interject right here. If you could just share the story of the first night you hang out with Tyler and saw him yeah. live in action. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so 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 I ended up going to Chicago to, to see him. And sort of through some misunderstandings, everybody sort of thought that I was friends with somebody else in real social dynamics. So they all sort of accepted me as one of them. And I guess my social skills were at least not so terrible that I couldn't get along with random people if I was around them. So they invite me to go out with them that night. And of course, I have no intention of even talking to a woman because I'm so scared, but I wanted to see them. And I, like, I, I still remember exactly what it looked like because it changed my view of life. But I remember seeing Tyler and he sort of comes up to me because he knows that he's showing off, right? And he he knows that he's sort of there to like, you know, there, there's a certain kind of game you do when you really want something solid. And then there's another way you go when you just want to impress people. So you could sort of get big visible reactions, which is also kind of moving you in the same direction as something solid, but it's not as effective. So he knew what mode he was in and he was very, you know, I probably learned this from him. So he's very aware of that. And so he goes, watch this. And there's this stunning girl and she's with this like big muscular guy. And, you know, Tyler's not muscular. No, you know, he's shorter than this guy. And I can't hear what he's saying because they're they're sort of on the other side of this small club and they're sitting on this like kind of like this double day bed sort of thing. So the guy and his girlfriend on this day bed and Tyler just sort of like sits on the edge of it like this, sort of leans over and just starts saying something. And you can see that the couple is just very dismissive of him. They're like, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he's like, he turns around. He's like, actually, he says something else and you can't really see what he's doing. And just as this is going, you see the girl is starting to become more, you know, her body language, she's starting to turn towards him. She's kind of sitting up so she can face him. And you can see that she's becoming more interested. And the guy is just becoming more perplexed because, like, clearly this guy is, you know, Tyler's like below him on the dating, you know, food chain. And he knows this. And his girlfriend is like showing interest and he can't quite figure out like what's going on. So at first he's sort of like dismissive of Tyler. Then he's like concerned. And at some point, Tyler and the girl are lying down on this day bed, sort of like leaned in, talking to each other. And I just remember the guy had like moved to a piano bench kind of thing. And he's talking to a random stranger he doesn't know. And you could just sort of tell he's like, look, this guy thinks he's picking up my girlfriend. And, you know, the girl had given him his number. She said, like, oh, come to my hotel room or something like that. So, yeah, it it blew my mind. It made me I thought if he can do it, I can do it. Okay, wait, so. Now that you know what's behind the scenes, if you were then Tyler, what do you think he was he saying? And you know, for that to happen, because it's just how I mean, even now you tell me, and it's and it, you saw it firsthand, right? It still sounds kind of crazy to me. <laughs> it's, it sounds crazy to me, and and to be fair, like Tyler is one of the best of the best, so like he can do stuff that normal humans can't do. Uh, Mystery is another one of those people that can do stuff like that, but. It's it's not so much what he said that matters. It it almost never is in pickup. It's usually what's going on under the surface. And in some ways, it's actually easier when a guy is there. Because if a guy is there, you just have to be better than him. If there's no other guy, you have to be better than any potential guy she can imagine. Obviously, there's logistical challenges. That, you know, There's pros and cons to it. But especially if you're just trying to impress people... Uh, it's almost easier because you you sort of befriend the guy in a way that he can't forcibly eject you, right? So you just sort of chat with him more than the girl, right? 
and then it's like, well, you know, there's sort of this cognitive dissonance where it's like, well, he's maybe not really trying to pick up my girlfriend because he's mostly talking to me. He's kind of ignoring her. He's being like a little bit what might look rude to her, but really it's teasing her, right? You can even sort of commiserate with the guy where you're like, oh my God, is she always like this? How do you live with her? You know, like little things like that, you know, like a neg that make it seem like you're not trying to pick her up. Meanwhile, her interest is getting peaked. So there's a lot of stuff you can do. That's interesting. I mean, so what you're saying is that you chat with the girl first, and then you go talk to the guy, uh, nagging the girl, and then you go back talking to the girl. And- so you talk to the group first. So you always, always, always talk to the group. Anytime you single one person out in a group, it's very weird for the rest of the group, right? Imagine if you and your friends are there and someone comes up and only starts talking to you. You feel very awkward, right? Because you've been removed from the group. But you would always want to engage the whole group. I mean, the start of of a good pickup is making it th- so that everybody wants you there, or at least will tolerate you. But if everybody's thrilled that you're there, they're all going to make it easier for you. So I, I think now that we're into deep with this pickup thing, what do you think is the sort of biggest misconception uh, with picking up? And I guess why it also gets such a bad rap? Yeah, I, I think some of the bad rap is deserved. I think especially these days, like, uh, I actually, I thought about removing it from my Twitter because I feel like the modern pickup artists sort of like give it a bad name. Uh, the way I was taught and the way I learned, you know, not everybody goes in with the best intentions for sure. And there are some bad actors like there are in any, in any field, but right. Like sales it, and all that. Right. Sure. But, but it was, you know, what I learned, the fundamental thing I learned was that women want to be treated a certain certain way they want to be communicated with us in a certain way they want their like the courtship to go in a certain way where it's exciting for them they feel comfortable right sort of on that edge of like excitement but still feel safe right they want to feel understood they want to feel valued for something other than their beauty they want to feel like they really know who you are they want to know why you're not just like every other guy so there are all these things that women want to happen whether they know it or not right uh, just like I don't know how to design a perfect roller coaster, but if I go on a roller coaster, it's well designed. I'm gonna have, I'm gonna enjoy it, right? So it's a similar sort of thing. And what pickup really is at its core, I think should be, is you understand the experience of a woman in dating, which is totally different than our experience, which I didn't realize at the time. You understand how women want to communicate and be communicated with. You understand which parts of you are sort of compatible with that already which parts you want to change. Like maybe I wasn't a good listener, but I wanted to become one. Fair enough, right? And then you also learn ways in which you're probably not going to change, but you just minimize those, right? Minimize the impact. So I think people think it's about pickup lines and manipulation and lying. In my experience, it's actually sort of the opposite where it's about understanding and sort of providing an experience that somebody wants. At the end of the day, if you're not compatible with somebody, you're not going to end up with them. But you can do certain things to maximize your chances of figuring out whether you're compatible or not. And you can work on yourself to make it so that you're more compatible with as many people as you'd be interested in as, as possible. Got it. Maybe well, let's go back to Tyler a little bit. What do you think is Tyler's superpower? Oh, I know what yeah, I, I know what his superpower is. Yeah. Tyler's superpower. So a good example is when when we all moved into this house, so I lived with him and a bunch of these other guys. One of us, probably him, had the idea that we should join a gym. There was this gym right across from the, from the house. So we walked down to the gym, and I had never been in a gym before. I think probably most of us hadn't. But Tyler had like read some stuff, or he knew a little bit. 
And I remember he was showing me how to do bicep curls. And so we're just doing these curls. And, you know, he's like, yeah, do it, do it till failure. So I'm like, "Uh, okay, good. Yep. Did it. And I remember, you know, I did, you know, 10 of them or whatever, right? The final one. I'm like, all right, that's it. Just like a normal person. And I remember he got to that point that I was at and he was like, like his face was turning red. He's like spitting. He's like fighting these things to get all the way to the top gets back down and does it again. Like he, like he's a machine. So like maybe I would go out, I would have a bad night. I'd get rejected a few times. I'm like, I'm done. I'm out of here. Right. I go home. He, he would keep going. And like his night didn't stop at two in the morning when ours did his stopped at four in the morning. I remember there was another time where I'm sitting on the couch. He comes downstairs and he's all dressed up in his, like his gear, you know, his his funny clothes and everything. And it's like, and it's like, 155 or two in the morning or something he's like hey man you want to go out it's like it's two the bars are closed he's like yeah but people are gonna be outside clubs they're gonna go eat food i mean there's still people let's go and i was like ah, you know i'm all right and he's like he just looks at me like i'm an alien and he says you know you came to this house you're spending a lot of money to be here why wouldn't you just maximize every second of being here and i was like and i kind of brushed him off and then as he left and i was sitting there i was like yeah what am i doing like he's totally right so he's like a very hardcore person. Um, wow, yeah. that's interesting. And and like, how does he still have the like you know to push through that? I, I'm not really sure, but you know, he, he and I we we don't see each other very frequently anymore, so I'm not super in touch or anything like that. I think there's some sense of wanting to master it for the sake of mastering it. I don't think he cares about the results. I actually don't think he's cared about the results for a really really long time. Um, So, yeah, I I think that he just really cares about mastery, that he sees that there's another level to get to, to be honest. And, you know, this is an outside perspective. I think it's to his detriment at this point. I actually think he's such a brilliant person and is so I think he could probably apply that to other fields and get, you know, get further. But, uh, yeah, he's just going crazy. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And and do you think that um, this idea of pickup, right? Uh, once you know it, would it still work on you? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, because really what it is, is like, I, I remember there were these fun. So when the game was coming out, it was this big deal because everybody knew it was coming out. And a lot of people were like terrified that it was going to totally ruin everything. Right. And I, I, I didn't feel that way because I felt that it was like, okay, I've changed who I am. I'm a better person. I understand women. It's going to be fine. And I remember the first night it came out, we were out at a club in Austin and this girl recognized what I was doing. And she said, Oh, this is, you know, you're doing this thing from the game. I was like, Oh yeah, that's so crazy. You know that I'm actually in the game. And she's like, no, you're not. And and, and I'm like, no, I really am. It's cool that you know about that, this whole thing. And she's like, that would never work on me. That would never work on me. And and, and I'm like, Oh, I you know, probably wouldn't. That's fine. And then of course, by the end of the night, she's like, you know, I wasn't, wasn't that interested in her, but she's like, oh, you know, take my phone number, call me, let's go out. Don't try that pickup stuff though. It won't work. So it's like, you know, yeah, I forget who it was. It was maybe mystery would say it or one of these guys would say, they say attraction isn't a choice, right? It's like, if you put, you know, men tend to be more visually stimulated, right? So if you put, if I held up a picture of a really beautiful woman, chances are and you're attracted to her, you, I can't say, hey, don't be attracted to her. And you're like, oh, okay, yep, not attracted anymore. Maybe if you got to know her personality, you wouldn't be or something. But you can't turn, you can't intentionally turn it on or off. So, wow. 
if it if it would still work, then the then the hard part would be as is the question would be like do you do you feel scared um like if you were to go to a club with your girlfriend with Tyler say for example or with your wife sorry uh no uh I think a lot of people should though <laughs> uh because I I think that many people have not really experienced like deep attraction or like uh you know i think that the experience that like someone who's good at pickup can provide to a woman is like a really good experience like you just have a better understanding of what they want you know nobody's perfect i'm sure my wife could tell you i mess up all the time but on average i think you you provide a level of communication of understanding and, and all that that's very high so i think if a girl is dating a guy and, and you would see this a lot you go you're going out a girl would be dating a guy who's the best available option then she meets you who's hopefully a lot better and it's like oh this is a, this is a different world right it's like i thought i'd like living you know on mars but here on earth things are amazing but you can breathe the air you know so uh i yeah i i think that for people who really don't know what they're doing and aren't you know creating a good relationship i think maybe they could be a little worried uh what resources practice or things some people want to get good at not i guess pick up one but more so like the broader thing which is like understanding women and you know getting better attraction and knowing the psych woman female psyche what do you recommend i think it's tough because i don't know that i've really seen anybody who's made like a material improvement in their life who hasn't been really hardcore and like spent a year doing nothing but pick up so i think like you can get an academic understanding of it by reading books but uh yeah, I don't know. Like the the people I've seen that really benefit a lot are people who are out doing it every day and then they read the right thing and that gets them next level or they go to a workshop or they just learn it themselves. I think it's almost dangerous to learn a little bit about it because that's when you have guys who think that negs are like insulting women and like they actually will make the results worse, but also know that they should be better. It's a really awkward position to be in. So yeah, I don't know that I recommend anything, to be honest. I, I wrote a book called Super, uh, Superhuman Social Skills, which is how to apply it to friendships and stuff like that. Uh, so, I mean, that was sort of my way of trying to make it accessible to people. Uh, if somebody wanted to take a program, I kind of feel like mystery is probably the right way to go. Um, but I also am not super aware of who's selling what and, and what's available. You know, I haven't done pickup in so many years now that like, I'm I'm pretty removed from it. Well, yeah, I mean, you got a wife now, so well, let's uh, yeah. well, we're going to talk about that next. That's interesting. <laughs> so you would, so your, I guess your A twenty would be one year full on, like go out and what? So maybe a mystery uh, uh, course. Uh, anything else uh, to to stack on that? Um, so I'd say first of all, only do a year if you're really bad and you really need it. If you don't need it, it, it's such a hard thing to do. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I think most guys who've gone through it would say that. And if you don't really need it, you're not really going to go the whole way through. And it's going to be kind of a waste of time. Like It's like one of these things, like you're going through a tunnel. It's like, well, it's only really worth it if you make it to the other side. If you don't, you're just stuck in a tunnel. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe this isn't the most encouraging thing, but it's like... I think if you just want to learn some of the skills that will be universally applicable, learn storytelling. I think that's like a good universal skill that will help with pickup, but also with other relationships. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, 
yeah, I, I, it, it's it's a tough thing. I actually don't recommend that most people do it. Like, if I have coaching clients and they want to do it, I often will tell them not to. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess I guess no one will hurt to learn active listening, you know, right. um, um, storytelling um, um, skills. And and if you're half decent at get, getting some dates through your your apps, then basically you're just recommending <laughs> not to. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think too, like, uh, you know, this isn't a very specific path, but I think the biggest thing to understand is that in general, women want to be communicated to differently than men do, especially in a dating context, you know, maybe not in a business context, but like in a dating context they do. And I think most guys are not very socially aware. Obviously there are some that are, but in general, an example. So in, in a dating context, a woman typically will want to feel an emotional reaction, right? So she'll want to feel excited or she'll want to be taken on, you know, if you're telling a story, it should be an emotional journey. That's part of why storytelling is so important. Uh, often, you know, if I meet a new guy at a party, I'm not trying to take him on an emotional journey. You know, probably we're trying to talk about facts, right? And that's probably what he wants. Um, even if a woman is approaching me, do I really want her to take me on an emotional journey? Not really. I kind of want to know what she's about. I want to connect. So I think just to be aware of if you sp speak with a woman and it doesn't go well, it's probably because you didn't really care about what she wanted to get out of that conversation or that interaction. You probably didn't think about it. And if you would, let's say if you were meeting me at a party and then you want to bring me on. Okay, let's say I sign up for an emotional journey with Tainan. How yeah. would that look? How would that look like? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'd say a lot of it's, you know... If, if, if it's with a woman, right, what, what you want, is, this is the point of a neg, right? Everybody thinks a neg is this big insult. It's really not. It's a little thing you say early on to sort of at least blur the line between are you interested in this woman romantically or just as a friend? Because a typical guy who's interested in a woman will say, he'd be like, oh, you're so beautiful. Can I buy you a drink? Wow, I haven't seen anyone as beautiful as you before. Something like that. Immediately, he's in a category and her default reaction is to shut him down, right? Whereas if you say like, you know, something like, oh, you got a little piece of lint on your shirt and you pull it off. Immediately she's like, oh, like, it's not like, oh, he thinks I'm ugly or like, oh, my pride is hurt. It's like, oh, he isn't viewing me as a sexual object, right? He's viewing me as a normal person on the same level as him, not on a Is that how you tease your friends? I'd say similar, right? Like, you know, like if you're hanging out with your guy friends, you're probably making fun of them actually probably a lot more than that, right? Or at least, you know, like banter, like like guy banter. So uh, so basically you, you do that and then the woman's like, oh, okay, maybe he's not really that interested in me, right? And then you start, you want to make her interested in you. So you start telling stories that maybe uh, show why you're different than other guys. So her interest is peaked. Now she's like, oh, okay, we started with nothing. Now I'm kind of interested in this guy, but I still don't really know if he's interested in me or not. Then you get to know her. And then it's like, oh, he isn't. And then you explain to her, not here's a list, but like you acknowledge what it is about her besides her beauty that you're interested in. Like, wow, that's so cool that you did this, this, this. I, I've never, I've always been interested in that. I've never met someone who does it, right? So that's this journey where you've gone from strangers and now you're both interested in each other and you're sort of on the same level that's high up. Let me just, uh, I guess, bring us out a little bit on this or pick up context. It's, it's just also, even if you meet a friend and that's, and this is what I learned from um, this lady, Vanessa Van Atwoods, who which basically took research paper and convert them into actionable advice, which is one of the things she's taught is that, look, if you're talking to a person like me talking to you, if I say, hey, 
me and you, we do solo traveling. Well, that's an uncommon trait that is common between both of us. And it's sort of, and what we want, and when there's a lot of this um, thing, is that you want to pull a lot of uh, connections. And the, mm-hmm. the most uncommon one, the, the better it is. And that will sort of create the bond and a reason why probably you will want to meet up again later in the future. For sure, yep. 100%. <laughs> let's do it yeah how do you came about like like well here we are like you are the best pickup artist in the world hopefully can attract any uh woman and going out all the time and 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 then why need a wife quest i guess yeah so one of the big failings of pickup for me or, or myself failings of myself within pickup was that to really do it you have to go to bars and clubs because that's the only place where you can really have see enough people to kind of keep active in it and I had this realization that, you know, as many bars and clubs I've been to, I'd never met anybody there who I was interested in long term, you know, whether or not they were even interested in me. I just hadn't met anyone where I, I, I you know, thought I'd be interested in them. And so it, when I had that realization, I sort of thought, OK, I've gotten what I want to get out of pickup, sort of done with it. It's not going to be like, you know, it's changed me in, in really good ways that'll carry me forward, but I don't necessarily need to like identify as being a pickup artist and go through all that anymore. So, you know, I had normal relationships and stuff like that. And then I was in this sort of period of time where I was trying to work hard and also trying to date and sort of realizing that I wasn't going to be able to do both to the standard that I wanted to do them at the same time. I was working really hard and I felt like that was my number one priority. And I felt like even if I met somebody great, I wasn't really going to have the time. I wouldn't be willing to cut cut away the time to build that kind of relationship that could end up in marriage. So I made a deal with myself, which was like zero dating for three years. And after that, Wife Quest 9000 begins where I'm going to like make that my top priority. Not in like a creepy way, like, hey, you want to be my wife? But like, you know, basically like not go on dates with people. I'm I, As soon as someone's disqualified from being wifey don't date them anymore even if it's you know even if i like them and uh just be real active on it so, yeah, so that's what i did wow okay so how do you come out with the criteria i guess in the first place so i think i learned about it a lot through just regular dating where uh for a good example is i don't drink and almost none of my friends drink and i definitely always knew i'd prefer somebody who didn't drink you know, as a girlfriend. So I would, I would try to only date girls who didn't drink. Obviously that decreases your dating pool by like 99% and probably 99.9% if you're out in clubs. Right. And so then I thought, okay, well, let me be more reasonable. I'll date people who drink. And so I had a girlfriend who drank and as we were dating, I was like, she's great. It's a fine choice for her. I don't want to end up with somebody who drinks. And now I know that. So like, that was one of my criteria. So I had a few criteria that are just like sort of set in stone and, and I sort of knew what they were going into wife quest. I also read like, I was getting a little antsy by the end of my three years of no dating. So I was reading like so many relationship books and parenting books and all this to try to like, you know, kind of have my head in the right mindset. What other, what other things that you, you, you put rather than no dating, I'm sorry, no drinking, uh, what are other things on the list? Uh, so I think I'm trying to think. I used to like really be able to rattle them off. Now it's been it's been you know years. But uh, yeah, no drinking, happy slash positive attitude. Um, somebody who's like focused on grow- growth. 
doesn't have to be in like a weird like self-helpy sort of way but like if if they come across some sort of obstacle they're going to try to overcome it and you know maybe change themselves for it something like that and then good communication i think probably i had more but like those were sort of the the gist of what i was looking at looking for how do you end up with this whole idea of marriage because um i think that's the the pretty much the opposite antithesis of what a pickup artist uh, i guess the image of a pickup artist is right it's like oh i'm never gonna settle I don't think I don't think it is the opposite. I think if you look, most of the people who are, who were in, especially in my like generation of pickup artists, most of them are married or in serious relationships, have kids, stuff like that. Uh, I think, especially because those people tend to sort of fade out of the spotlight. So one of the other guys who lived in the house uh, actually now lives right near me in Vegas, and he's married and has a beautiful kid and all this. So like, uh, you know, it, it depends. A lot of people got into it for a lot of different reasons. I think really most of the people that I knew who were into it and were serious about it got into it because they wanted to end up, if not married, like in a long-term relationship with somebody great and felt like they couldn't do it without that skill. Obviously, there were people who just want to sleep with as many people as possible. And you'd, especially on workshops, you get people like that once in a while. But uh, I don't think it's the opposite at all. That's fair. I think it's just the sort of the societal image of uh, how it yeah. makes us think. Right, or some people really have a lifestyle of it, and and they like it as a hobby, like Tyler or whatever. So, uh, but you know, I think it. I I think my wife doesn't really like it. Like she she's like, oh, I'm glad I didn't meet you back then. She doesn't like to hear the stories from back then. But at the same time, you know, she doesn't. I don't think she understands who I would have been without it. And, and for sure, like even if she thinks we would still have found each other or been dating, I don't know if she does. Without it, I know we would not have. I wouldn't have had the confidence to talk to her. So. You know, so it, I think it's a natural extension. Yeah, and and I guess like coming back to your wife a little bit. Um, apparently, you guys sleep separately at one point. Do you still do? Uh, I, so we we sleep separately maybe half the time or something like that. Uh, I I just I sleep so much better separately. Uh, and it's not her specific; it's just anybody specific. Like I, you know, I have like a smartwatch that tracks my sleep. Like you can see the difference. And uh, yeah, I, f I found that when we first moved in together, you know, we actually didn't move in together till after we got married, just because of logistics. And I found that like in the first month of being married, like I was really getting annoyed with her, and it wasn't her fault. Like it was, I knew it was my fault. I'm like. Wow, she just like came up into my office to like give me water or do something like really sweet, and I'm annoyed with her. Clearly, it's my fault. And I was like trying to figure out what it was, and I realized I was just exhausted, right? And so I was like, "Hey, I, I'm going to sleep in the guest room for a night. I just like, I, I think I need sleep, right?" And I was, I felt like a different person the next day. And so now, you know, and you know, she's very, she gets it. She's not like, she's very logical and all that. So now. Uh, we sleep in separate beds about half the time. Ideally, I'd like to have like two twin beds that are like separated by a few inches. I think that's like the ideal situation. But uh, yeah, not yet. This conversation seems uh, a lot more awkward than one normal <laughs> couple of conversations uh, seems like. Um, is it? Do you think it is a, uh, her as a factor of how this conversation went really well? Or do you think it is like how both of you have great communication skills? Uh. I mean, I think it's both. Like, I think I'm able to present it in a way that, like, ex you know, that makes it clear that it's not her, it's me, you know, because it really is. Like, hey, I sleep better by myself. Sorry, I wish I didn't. You know, it'd be great. So I think I do a good job of communicating that, but I think she also does a good job of, like, she's confident and secure enough to, like, 
receive that information without making like, oh, he doesn't like sleeping in the same bed. You know, some girls would be insecure enough to kind of make it into something else. So, you know, I think it's a two-way street. And I think in general, we have really good communication. Like, do you know why you guys have so little arguments uh, as compared to the general statistics of couple? I, I mean, yeah. the, the, on one blog post, it says oh, there's only one big one so far. So I don't know if that still stands. Yeah, still only one big one. Uh, and even and even that wasn't like really a big, you know, uh, it was, you know, the, the big one was about uh, it was about me spending time with a female friend of mine who she didn't know. And so it's just sort of going into the relationship with different experiences. I have a lot of female friends who were 100 percent platonic. And I think especially in Chinese culture, she's Chinese. That's like, you know, that's not how it is. Right. And so I, I think it was sort of like I was so cavalier about it. And she's like, whoa, like what's going on? So uh, so that was sort of our one big argument. Uh, I think I mean, I think we both have good communication skills, We're both good at talking stuff through. One thing I give her a tremendous amount of credit for, which I've never really experienced in any other relationship, is that I think she's very good at bringing up small things before they even become like small arguments. I'm, I'm trying to think of like what an example would be. Uh, I mean, they're so small, they sort of like fade into the background, but you know, she'd be like, Oh, you know, just have a small thing to bring up. But like once in a while, when like if you're working and you know, this, then I feel this way. And it's like, Oh, okay, I didn't realize I'll just stop doing that. Or like, Oh, no, that's what this really means. And it's like, Okay, no problem anymore. Instead of like festering, I'm trying, I wish I could think of a good real example. So here's here's one example is whenever I get Amazon packages, I'm excited to get my package. I open it up, get my thing, and sometimes I leave the box lying around. So we actually have two apartments that are next to each other, and we treat them like one apartment. But like I had already had this apartment, so she bought the one next to me, so we kind of have a big one. And typically, you know, we share them, but like I, I keep mine clean, she keeps her clean, stuff like that. And so I'll leave these boxes all over my apartment and it doesn't bother me. You know, once a week I kind of stack them up, I, I throw them out and I, I never thought twice about it because, you know, I got a couple cardboard boxes. It's just, it's fine. And so like the way she brought it up is she's like, Hey, like, you know, I noticed you have all these cardboard boxes around your apartment. Like it's not a big deal, but you know, it kind of bothers me to just see them sitting there. And I was like, Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I was like, how about if I leave them in my office? She's like, yep. Or you can put them by the door and I'll throw them away for you. I'm like, Oh, Problem solved either way. You know what I mean? Instead of like her feeling uncomfortable in our house and being annoyed and like, well, it's not a big enough deal to bring it up until all of a sudden maybe she's just so pissed off at me. It comes out in some other way and we're fighting about something that wasn't even the actual issue. So I think she's really good at bringing stuff like that up and just sort of like is always actually willing to have a solution. So even with that, me being friends with this other girl situation, you know, she was upset and, and I get it, right? And I remember thinking like, oh, it sucks. This is like one of my closer female friends. Now it's going to be awkward. I can never like they'll they'll never get along. And so in the resolution of it, I was like, look, I won't travel with her again until you're friends with her. All I ask is that and I won't even be alone with her unless anybody else, you know, unless other people, you know, are there. It's fine. All I ask is that you make an effort to become friends with her. And I sort of said that thinking like, yeah, she's probably not going to do it. Within a week, they were like best friends. And I was like blown away. I was like, she really was like, she put it aside. She she was like, okay, this is my, my husband's friend. There must be good things about her. Let me get to know her. And now they're friends. So I think almost no women would do that, right? So I, I give her a tremendous amount of credit. Yeah. And and I think also the, the, the way she phrased, you know, hey, this is bothering me. It's not your fault. 
it's just right. my thing that helps a lot in terms of communication and then just willing to have a solution big upfront and being able to sort of be solution orientated and sort of just like throw ideas out there maybe this solution is not the one for you but here's what i think then you know it's way easier right yeah yeah i always feel like she's trying to find a solution not trying to like blame me for something i did wrong and you see a lot of relationships where it's really a lot about one party or the other trying to like you know earn points by showing how wrong the other person is which of course you know is toxic to the relationship bad idea <laughs> yeah. yeah and i think you alluded to this um two apartments thing which derek also brought it out so um do you want to like just start off there of this vegas apartment that you have uh, uh i guess a couple of questions that i have like you know that you can answer together is well why vegas how do you get like 20, I don't know, is it 20 apartments, you know, at the same time? Uh, and and you got it at, I, I remember somewhere on the internet, it was like 50,000 for an apartment. Yeah. I don't know how big this apartment is, but it's right next to the strip. Um, so I think I'll just have you uh, rattle on. Yes. So I knew that, uh, I knew that the 2008 housing crash really affected Vegas a lot. And I would go to Vegas, you know, once per month or so to play poker. So I was, you know, I was familiar with Vegas. I liked Vegas. I liked the strip. And I just sort of like, you know, I didn't know numbers, but I was like, oh, yeah, Vegas is really cheap. I just sort of knew that in the back of my head. And then this one t month, I had this great trip to Vegas. I played poker. I went to the buffet. I had like I'd made friends with a, a local person here and hung out with them. And I was like, man, Vegas is like a fun place to be. And I was like, oh, let me just check out what real estate is like. And it was like far cheaper than I thought it was. Like I knew it was cheap, but I was also coming from San Francisco prices. And so I was like, oh, it's really cheap. And so there were a lot of places for under 100K, a lot, you know, a bunch for under 50K. There were some for even like 30K back, back then. And so I just thought like this is so cheap that I basically can't lose if I buy a place here. Like whether I just use it as like a crash pad for myself when I play poker and save hotel fees, whether I Airbnb it out, whether I like, I don't think I ever thought I'd live there, but I just like, I, it's like so, ver my friends could say that it's just like so versatile. There's going to be some way to make that work. So I just bought this place sight unseen. I was actually in Czechoslovakia or no, no I was in Hungary at the time, I think, or maybe, maybe Prague. Anyway, one of those Eastern Europe, I just remember like, being in front of a big church, like signing the documents on my phone, like, I guess I'm buying this place. Um, and so I bought this place. It was like 800 square feet. It was under 500, uh, under 50,000. And I, I just bought it. And, and, you know, a month later I show up and I remember getting the keys and going into this apartment. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is just like, you know, it's the most generic apartment you can imagine. Crappy brown carpet, popcorn on the ceiling, like white, you know, it's just the, the, kitchen was like disgusting like this weird like melted plastic kind of countertop like fixtures greasy stove from the 60s and i was like what like what am i even doing here i don't even know uh but clearly i needed to renovate it so i was here and i'm doing all these projects and, and all this and in the time that i was renovating it i got to know vegas outside of the strip and it just fell in love with it you know not so much in the way you fall in love with like a beautiful city like San Francisco, where you're like, wow, this is like a beautiful masterpiece of a city, but more like, wow, I love living here. It's just like, it's so convenient. It's so pleasant. Uh, it's like, there's no friction to do anything. The food's great. It's cheap. 
And yeah, by the time I'd renovated the place for whatever purpose, I, I lived here essentially. Um, and then in the process, you know, the biggest problem for it was, especially at the time, I, I, I felt like San Francisco had the best people in the world in terms of, for me, making friends with people. And Vegas was not as good. And so my solution, being stubborn, I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I thought, I'm going to try to move them here. And so now it's a few years later, and we've got 12 of the, the apartments in our neighborhood. Uh, and so, you know, mo- nobody's, almost nobody's here full time. It's all part time or whatever. But uh, yeah, so now we've got this weird neighborhood in Vegas. Wait, so is it like a like a, a apartment in a building or is this like houses? Uh, yeah, they're sort of like connected. It's not like a high rise. It's like low rise, you know, kind of connected. Yeah, almost like townhouse kind of thing. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Oh, that's cool. That's really cheap. I mean, yeah, ridiculous. I mean, if you come to Singapore, you know how much uh, property price <laughs> here is. Yeah, um, and they're not as cheap anymore, but they're still under 100K. Oh, but uh, yeah, that's, that, that's still, yeah, pretty cheap. Uh, and so how did, how did I guess, uh, Wifey and you, like, <laughs> have a two separate thing? How, what was the thinking behind it? Well, I mean, I, I really customized my apartment a lot, so I didn't want to move. She was in Houston for school, so she was ready to move anyway, you know. And, you know, she would stay with me in my place, but it's a two-bedroom place. One of the bedrooms is converted. It's this room here. It's converted to my office. And so, you know, it's it's not that big. I'm like, what is she going to do all day? Like, she can't, you know, I need my office to myself. The bedroom's small. It's not like, she, you know, what's she going to do in there? You can just sit in the bed. Is she really going to just hang out in the living room all day? I don't know. So, uh the unit next to mine came up for sale and, and she, you know, she likes to invest and stuff like that. I'm like, look, if you don't buy it, I'm going to buy like, you, you should buy this apartment. And she, you know, Chinese people love buying apartments. Anyway, all she wants to do is buy apartments. So, so she was ready for that. Uh, so she bought the apartment and, and it's cool because, you know, she has her own space that can be exactly, you know, I don't cook, she cooks. So her kitchen is exactly how she wants it to be. I don't step foot in there you know, uh, my office is how I want it to be. Her living room, actually, now she has a better office than me because her living room is now her office. So it's it's this giant table and a couch and all this. Um, so it's kind of fun. We have our own space, but also common space. I think in the, in the near future, we'll probably move into a house. Um, but I think we'll but there's no chance of like combining two, two, two together, right? Is there? we've thought about it. The problem is it's just not that efficient. Like we have two kitchens. We really don't need two kitchens. Like uh, we pay two HOA fees, which are relatively high. So it, it like, it, it just kind of, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to go through that. Plus then how are you ever going to sell it with this weird sort of Frankenstein apartment situation with, you know, two kitchens. So, and, and, you know, in Vegas, a lot of houses, even in the price range of like, if we just sold our apartments and combined that to buy a house, you might have a pool and stuff like that and garage. So it'd be nice to have stuff like that. Okay. So I want to dive into this idea of empire housing. And so how, how many homes do you own? I think it was like five, the last account or something like that five, around yeah. the world. Uh, um, uh, Budapest and then there's Tokyo, uh, well, uh, Vegas. Uh, I, I, I can't remember what else. Hawaii and then we have an island. Oh, there we go. Yeah, Hawaii and Island. How did this idea came about? And uh, what what does Empire Housing go, go right ahead? So I think the kernel of the idea started way back in, in, I guess it was in college. 
is there college or high school? I think it was college. I convinced my friends to buy a school bus with me because I had just seen this movie called Road Trip and they, they steal this school bus and they have this awesome road trip in it. And I forget even how it started, but I thought, well, how much is a school bus? Turned out they were very cheap. And, you know, my, my father's a carpenter. I like to build stuff. And so I thought we could build this really cool road trip vehicle. And everybody predicted disaster. I mean, everybody thought this was like the dumbest idea ever, except for my friends. And they're like, you know, you're going to fight about it. It's going to break down. It's going to be all these problems. And it ended up being like one of the best decisions we made. The The common ownership was super easy. We all worked on it together. The finances were easy. When the whole thing blew up outside of Vegas, nobody really cared because they only had 500 bucks into it anyway. Um, so I think like somewhere in the back of my head from that, I had this idea that you could like, there could be this sum is greater than its parts situation in buying stuff. And so i had always wanted to buy an island. Uh, since high school, a friend showed me this magazine called Rob Report. It's a really, it's a magazine for people who wish that they were rich, but it pretends to be a magazine for people who are rich. And in the classifieds, it always had islands for sale. And it's to me, this really resonated with me. It's like, well, that's the coolest thing. And I've noticed when I talk to people, if I talk to girls, most of them don't care at all. And then guys either think it's the coolest thing they've ever heard of, or they're like, well, that's pointless. Why would you? it's sort of like the girls. So, but for me and some of my friends, it was like, yes, of course, an island is the coolest thing you could ever have. And I'd searched and searched to try to find an affordable one, but you can find some for as cheap as like $30,000, but they're all the way over in like remote islands of the Philippines where you have to like, take a flight to manila then a regional flight then you have to hire a float plane then you have to hire like a native in a canoe to like it's like these ridiculous scenarios or you find one in the caribbean or maine but they start at like half a million dollars and so i'd sort of given up or like earmarked it like all right when i have more money i'll do it and then a friend of mine who lives in japan he's like hey have you ever seen this site you know privateislandsonline.com and he showed it to me and i was like dude i look at the site every month it's not doable they're too expensive they're too far and he said, oh, that's weird. I thought some of the Canada ones would work. And I realized I'd never checked Canada. And I looked. And sure enough, they were like, there were plenty of them, like 100,000 or under, a little bit over. And so literally within two days, I had an offer in. I like, I stayed up all night. I, I was at that point aware of every single island that was for sale in the eastern side of Canada. And I got two or three friends who said they were in. And I was like, all right, if I got two or three friends already, for sure, I can get 10. I'll just put in an offer and we'll figure it out. And again, people predict, you know, this was on Hacker News when we bought it, and people were predicting it was going to be the biggest disaster and all this. And, you know, some people have never been to the island, or one guy's never been to the island. Some of us go every year multiple times. Everybody loves that they bought it. So it, it that sort of was like, all right, well, once that worked, I'm like, all right, where else can I buy a place? And so then I got Budapest and then uh what came next i guess hawaii and then we just got tokyo and now i'm done tokyo's the last one and and you sort of like wrote out a little bit in in, the, in, in your book about how this whole um uh, thing is being set up if you could just top level walk through um why uh how did you choose um the structure of um how you do the finance uh and why i think it was uh somewhere in the midwest one of those uh, cities where you can start a lp there right so why that 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 city uh, it's just sort of lowest hassle because I, I know I'm going to be the guy dealing with all of it. And so I'm just trying to make it. And, and it's also it's a group of people who we all trust each other like 100 percent. Like if I had to hand off the reins to any member of any of the groups for years, I would. You know, it's fine. So it's sort of like, all right, what's going to let us do this the easiest way, the least hassle? Wyoming is one of the easiest, cheapest places to have an LLC. 
I think if you have certain lawsuits, it's maybe not the best one, but we'll never have lawsuits. So, uh, yeah, it's just an easy structure. I just, you know, it's monthly fees or annual fees. You can choose if you're a member, which one you pay, you know, they equal the same amount. Um, and then typically I just decide how it all gets spent. If it's going to be something crazy, like a renovation, we have a discussion about it. If it's like, we need a new thermostat, I just buy it. Um, or somebody else just does it. They can tell me I pay them the money. So yeah, it's just, it's very easy. Very low overhead. What what uh so basically the idea is that you want to set up a company and then um and then everybody sort of like uh have a equal amount of ownership uh and then they then you are sort of like the CEO of this company who decides yeah. on uh, what to do with this uh, property, which is sort of like an investment uh, or equipment. Uh, how do you exp- how do you expand that? Is that how it is? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I don't know if it's true in Singapore or other places. In in the U.S., there's an entity called an LLC, which is just like it's like fifty bucks a year. It's sort of like like my cars are owned by LLCs. Everybody has an LLC for everything because it's just such an it's an easy structure to own stuff in. So I made the mistake in Budapest of trying to get a Hungarian equivalent, which is a KFT, and I regret it to this day. Like every month, we have to ha- we have an accountant, we have to pay taxes. It's like this big hassle. So in the U.S., it's very easy. It's like no effort, no hassle to, to have an LLC. So wait, so how is that different from like a, a private ownership or like what is the next tier on top of LLC? So I guess the next one up would be like a corporation. And fundamentally, if you're not, you know, none of these places make money. We don't. So they're all, you know, if you don't make a profit, there's probably not, you know, if you make a profit with the corporation, maybe there's some more hassle, uh, I don't know. It's just sort of the easiest one. Like there, you don't have to have board meetings. You you have to file one annual report per year. Uh, it's easy to open a bank account for it. It's just like a very easy way to do it. You know, if the members change, you don't even have to report it because everybody just kind of has a certificate that says they own a percentage. So it's just like it's just kind of easy. Right. So those are those are the different things that you sort of want to, I guess, to know uh, before. Um, and I guess the so the ownership, uh, the sole proprietor thing wouldn't work because it's a shared property, and everyone still kind of you still kind of want to give everyone like a piece of paper that say, "Hey, you own this amount and all that," right? Sort of. I mean, I have all the papers. Nobody's asked me for them, so you know, it's like uh, I don't know if anybody even has them, but I guess some people do. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could do it as like a group ownership thing. Like you can just put all of your names on the title. But then if one person, we've never, or I guess we had one person switch once. Then if you have somebody switch, you have to get it retitled or like you you probably have to do a bill of sale. You have to do all this stuff. For an LLC, you don't. You just change a record internally. So it's just easy. Yeah. Well, what is like if, like let's say you fall in love with the city, right? Um, how do you start... I guess what is your process of thinking behind it to start sort of looking and you know um, and then you know to like fixing on a place and putting in the offer. Yeah, so my general formula is like the cheapest place in the best location is sort of that's my goal. And you know I don't always buy the number one cheapest place or get the number one best location, but like I'm never gonna get a bigger place further out, basically, right? Uh, my other sort of rule is. If I would rather get an Airbnb than stay in my own place, I shouldn't buy my own place, right? So it has to at least it has to be better than an Airbnb that I would book would be, right? It doesn't have to be better than every Airbnb, but like so for Budapest, for example, there's enough 
Airbnbs, I don't know if this is still true, but a couple of years ago when I bought the place, there are enough Airbnbs sort of in the $50 to $70 range that that's what I'm going to spend on an Airbnb most of the time. You know, if I have a bunch of friends, maybe get a bigger one or whatever. So my criteria was, can I buy a place that's in a better location or at least as good a location as any of those $50 to $70 Airbnbs? And then can I make it, can I furnish it to a much higher level? So then once I get the place, I furnish all these places to levels that are very ridiculous for for their location, right? So like, you know, my apartment in Vegas is in a, in a neighborhood that if you ask a Vegas resident about this area, they'd be like, oh, I, I wouldn't step foot in that area. They think it's dangerous. But I have a movie theater. I have a sauna. I have my own gym. Like, you know, I, I you know, so, so I, you know. The whole thing's automated. I have plants everywhere, all this sort of stuff. So we furnish to a very high level uh, in, in all the places. And, and do you just sort of like go to whatever uh, property guru or, you know, one of those listing sites and just start looking at like for areas and all like, or do you just sort of like, do you visit the area? Because you actually, in your Vegas area, like you haven't even been to the place and you just put in the offer or have you actually been to that like apartment itself? It turns out I actually had been very nearby because one of my favorite restaurants is nearby, but I didn't realize it. I, I didn't know until after I'd moved. Uh, I think about primarily, uh, I think primarily about transit time to things I care about, right? So in Japan, I'd actually never been to the neighborhood that we bought our place, but I've spent, I mean, countless months cumulatively or maybe years in Japan. And so I was like, all right, here are the I, here's the tea places I go to. Here's where my friends live. Here are my favorite restaurants. And I just made like a spreadsheet for all the neighborhoods I was considering, like what's the transit time walk plus train. Um, so the formula for Japan essentially is how close can you get to a train station? Because actually walking tends to be a bigger component. If you're 18 minutes from the best train station in Japan, well, you're 18 minutes plus from everywhere. We're, we're four minutes from not the best station, but a station that's on two of the best lines, pretty close to a lot of the best stuff. So that made it a lot easier to get a cheap place there, but you know we can get anywhere fast. So in Budapest, I, I stayed there for a month and a half. I wasn't that familiar with the city, so I, I was boots on the ground there. Uh, Hawaii, I went once before I bought it because I hadn't been to Hawaii in 20 years, so I thought, let me make sure I still like it. Uh, and but But even in finding the place, I only looked at one apartment complex because I was like, here's the stuff I know I'm going to want to do. It's the only one that's in a reasonable price range and is close. So either we're buying that or we're not buying. Um, do you go uh, via a realtor or do you just like went straight to the owner and send a letter? Uh, realtor. Uh, for the island, we bought it directly because they had an island, they had a listing on Craigslist. But uh, I think, actually, I guess Budapest, we, they have a weird system where there aren't really realtors. So uh, we went through direct there. So I guess maybe I go direct half the time. Right, but if you have an opportunity to, you would definitely still stick to the realtor because they know what they're doing and you know laws and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, typically, I just I I've never had somebody else find it, so I find it a hundred percent of the time myself. And then if locally a realtor can can do all the documents and kind of make it all happen, then I hire them. I, I don't want to do the documents, so I'd much rather hire a professional who's going to do it right. You do all the hard work by finding the place. And then they take the commission just by doing the documents, I guess, then. I mean, yeah, because I figure if I tell them, like, hey, here are the five places I want to go. Find me a place that's the closest to this. They don't care. Like, you know, that that's not how realtors work because they just have too many people who are wasting their time, essentially, to, for them to do that specific of a search for everybody. So, 
you know, as I do probably with too many things, I'm like, well, I'm the only person who can possibly do this well, so I'll do it myself. But also, I, you know, all these places, I think of them as having them for life. So I think I don't care how much upfront time I put in because I'm going to have this place for life. Because it, it seems like it's a, the, the search process itself is really like, um, it's time consuming, right? Because you just got to go like area by area and then like, okay, what's this price? And create this like massive like, like spreadsheet of like, you know, okay, possibly and then kneeling down on sort of an area and then like going full on with that area and then finding like all the different apartments in the area, isn't it? For sure, yeah. Okay. Well, um, I want to talk a little bit about making friends because you seem to have a really interesting and, and cool group of friends over the years. It, th- would you say that you intentionally developed them over the years? Yeah. For, I mean, not all of them. I think, you know, some people you meet by chance. I definitely was totally oblivious to everything, and I still have some great friends from that era. Uh, but... I would say, you know, any most friends that I've made in the past five, ten years was a relatively deliberate process. Yeah. But how how does it look like, you know, uh, of you um, reaching out? I guess how does the first reach out looks like to sort of, I guess, the part two will sort of be the cultivation, and then you know, like how do you screen for them and and all that? Uh, do you have a process in place and all? So I'd say I started with screening because what happened was. I was working hard on set. I had almost no free time and I and I was still going to social things, but sort of realizing I didn't have enough time to follow up with, you know, new people, my friends, etc. And so I thought, okay, well I before I could always just hang out with anybody I wanted to all the time. It didn't really matter how well I was using my social time. Now it matters, so I have to be more more uh uh discerning. So the my first step was like, okay, how do I know who I want to spend time with? Like I've got to have a filter up front. And so actually what I did is I looked back at friendships I had made in the past. And I thought who are like the big distinction to me is like, who are the people who I want to spend more time with? You know, cause I have like, you know, a lot of people I'm friendly with who I really like a lot, but maybe I don't really care if we, you know, it's not important to me that we spend a lot of time together. I care about what happens in their life, but like if we don't become better friends, that's fine. Right. I think we all have you know, people like that. But then I have other people who it's like, man, I really hope that our friendship continues to grow or like, here's an acquaintance I hope I become even better friends with. And almost like dating, I was like, what are the things that actually matter to me? What are, and for me, it was, uh, it was essentially smart people, ambitious people who are also kind. And, you know, there are other things as well. But I found, especially in San Francisco, that was an effective filter because you could meet a lot of ambitious people, but a lot of them weren't really kind people, you know, that would do things that were sort of against their best interest if it was the right thing to do. I guess that was sort of my definition. Um, And then there were also a lot of kind people, but sort of in that hippie sort of like, I hope the best for everybody, but, but not really doing much with their lives, right? And so I found that a lot of my favorite people were kind of at that intersection. And so basically I was like, okay, who do I already know who are maybe acquaintances who are kind, ambitious people who maybe there's not a specific reason, but I would like to become better friends with them. And I would proactively make time for them. And then there were other people who maybe were even kind, ambitious people, or maybe weren't both of them. But I was like, you know, I don't actually care if I become better friends with them. In fact, sometimes I realize like, I kind of just want to be friends with this person because I think it's like good for my like, career because they're like a famous person or something and i didn't and i was like i'm just going to stop being friends with them 
or stop putting effort in, right? Because it's just not, didn't feel good. Um, and so just having that filter, I think was 90% of it, where it just made it very clear, like, here are the people I should be spending time with. Here are the people, you know, if they're around, that's great. But if they're not, I'm not going to make an effort. Um, and then the other thing I thought is like, okay, if I have limited time, I better be pretty proactive about this. I can't just like see what happens, sort of like dating, you have to be proactive. So even though I'm sort of naturally an introvert, maybe now I'm more in the middle, but naturally I'm an introvert. I thought, okay, I'm going to be the guy who is going to be the hub of this friend group. Not because I want the importance of being the hub or whatever, but because it's a service I can provide for everybody that makes me even more valuable to them. And something I learned along the way is that probably the most valuable service you can provide as a friend is helping your friend foster a friendship with somebody else, right? That That's a really good friend for them. And so if you're the hub, you have a lot of ways to do that. Um, so that's sort of my general formula. What is the boots on the ground tactical stuff, right? So I guess, um, I, well, before then you didn't have a, a big castle or, or, you know, an island or whatnot. <laughs> and I guess not everyone have an island. Um, no, what my, are my the... friends almost never come to the island. It's weird. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. but what are the other aspects of uh, how does a hub uh, look like or, or could feel like? Yeah, so the easy, whenever I'm trying to come up with a plan, what I want to do is come up with a plan that is like definitely going to succeed if I do it, right? So that way, if it doesn't succeed, I know I didn't do it well enough. And if and if I'm doing the process, I know for sure it's going to succeed. Can't do it in every situation. I probably can't come up with a plan that will get me into the NBA, for example, right? But but clearly, I'm capable of having friends. So like, okay, what's the the plan for that? And so I want to make it easy and repeatable. And so for friends, the easiest way to start is have a weekly gathering that you can invite people to. It's best if you already have one friend, and that's how I did it. So I had my friend Todd, one of my best friends for, from forever. And every Sunday, I don't even know why we did this. Every Sunday, we went to our favorite burger place in San Francisco. He was also the one I worked on set with. So I think maybe that was part of it. So we would take a break every Sunday night. Exactly. And so what we did is we just started inviting other people every Sunday. So I sort of had these friends that were sort of in another friend group that I was part of. And I thought, I'm just going to invite the ones that I like every Sunday. And it's going to be like a very low pressure invitation. If they want to come, they come. If they don't, they don't. And they're going to know it's a standing invitation. So just every Sunday, I'm like, hey, as always, we're going to, to Rome. That's the name of the place, Rome Burger. If you can come, come. If you can't, maybe we'll see you next week. And pretty quickly, another couple started coming a lot. So there were four of us that always came. And then that made it really fun because, of course, you're all looking forward to seeing each other. And then they would start bringing some of their friends. We bring our friends. And so now this friend group, I haven't been in San Francisco in years now. And that friend group still meets all the time, right? And some of them wouldn't be friends if I wasn't there. Probably some of them would have been. Um, and anytime I go to San Francisco, most importantly, I have an amazing friend group to be a part of. Uh, to this, I guess, is this still the burger place? Or they have like move on to sushi now? <laughs> we still we still go to the burger place. Oh, that's yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and anybody can do that, right? It's so easy. It's like pick up. You don't have to cook. Just pick a place you like. Weekly invitation. Find one person who wants to do it with you. How hard is it to find another person that wants to make friends? It's so easy, you know. So just find one other and do it. And I think I mean Nick is coming out with his new book, uh, our new yeah. grade dot net um, uh, hosting parties. So we can look forward to that. Uh, and yeah. 
and also, I guess, uh, whatever your interest is, it could be a, uh, reading a book or, or you know, so your book club, documentary, right, sure. documentary night, and, you know, anyone wants to do, just make it a, a routine, have one more person, <laughs> and then yeah. get going. Yeah. Now that you're away from these uh, places, um, for friends who are not in the place you are living in, well, what, like, how do you keep uh, nurture or cultivate or, you know, keep up with these relationships? Yeah, it, it can be hard. And I also don't, I think I do an okay job of it, but I don't think I'm necessarily the, the best at it. Um, but I guess my typical thing I do is I try to invite as many of those friends to on as many trips as I can. can. So if I'm in Budapest, hey, come to Budapest. If I'm in Hawaii, come to Hawaii. Or if they're going on a trip, I'll join them as well. Um, I, I find that for me, you know, it's different for everybody, but I think most of my friendships have developed the most on trips, especially maybe smaller group trips, few people on a trip. So I just try to maximize those. Um, you know, I try to stay in touch on, you know, WhatsApp and all that. I'm not the best at that. Uh, I try to send emails once in a while, just check up on people. Uh, some friends and I now, actually that, that group that used to go to Rome Burger, now we do weekly uh, games online. So tomorrow night we'll do that. Uh, yeah, so, I, you know, I try to keep up as much as I can. I think essentially for me, most of my friends are nomad kind of nomadic kind of people. So all of us are at least okay at keeping up with people remotely. You know, like like if if any of us drops off, like if I just never sent anything outgoing, I'm probably going to hear from all of those people once or twice per year. You know what I mean? And, and vice versa. Um, and so I think when you're a nomad, you essentially just get a big enough friend group eventually that you always have some social contact throughout the week because there's enough of them and enough of them stay in touch. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about giving advice because you're sort of like this ex- expert advice giver, I guess, throughout the years, you've become better at it. Uh, yeah. uh, let's start, with, start off with mistakes. Uh, that people make in giving advice, and then let's move on into how does a good advice look and feel like, and what's the point? Uh, I guess what's the angle of a good advice? Right. So I think I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they give advice that's good for them but not for the other person, right? Like uh, even when I like, and and I think I've been as guilty of this as anybody else. But like when I got into pickup it was such a revolution for me that I went to every guy and I'm like, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. And then when they didn't do it, I was like annoyed with them. I'm like, guys, this is so important. Why aren't you doing it? And only like with some level of maturity, did I look back and realize like, actually for some of them, it probably was the right thing for some. It really wasn't. And if I push too hard on it and it's not the right thing for them, that's, they're probably not going to take my advice next time either. Right. So I think a lot of people, are thinking about their own situation more than the other person's situation when they're giving advice. So I think that's a big, big mistake. I also think something I've learned a lot through coaching and events in particular is that there's no point in giving advice, even if it's the correct advice, if you know the other person will not do it, right? Like I would actually rather give somebody something that's 80% good advice that I know they're going to do than 100% good advice that they're probably not going to do. Here's a good example. So I had somebody who had plenty of money, had a lot of money saved up, like hundreds of thousands of dollars saved up, hated his job and wanted to start his own business, right? So clearly like the right thing for me, I don't know if this is an exact example, but more or less, this is a sort of maybe a half made up one. So clearly it's like, quit your job, start your business. But 
he had an emotional attachment to the job. He felt he wasn't secure if he was burning through his savings. A lot of people feel that way, right? And so I would actually rather tell him, okay, do the bare minimum at the job, get job, get done what you have to do, and then you're going to work on your side business for this amount of hours per day, and then hoping that he eventually will grow it up to where he'll quit the business. If he's not like, there's no point in me telling you, you have to quit the business. You have to quit the business. If he, if I know he's not going to, if I think they might, I'll I'll push that side. But once I realize there's no way they're going to do it, you sort of get to know that look or that tone of voice. I switch gears. Yeah. How how does that how does that like like feel like you know sound like I guess. So typically, people will be listening. It's it's more that you see that they're listening but not processing anymore. I mean, there's probably a lot of small cues, but I think that's the first one that comes to mind. Is at first you're giving advice and they're really into it because they're they want advice from you, and then you realize that they're like, uh-huh, okay, yep, 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 and you're like, oh, you're not going to do this. You know, it's just I don't know. I mean, I've probably just been in that situation enough times now. Also, especially with I do a monthly phone coaching with a lot of people, and so I actually get to see whether they've done it or not. And so I think I've become much better at predicting whether someone's going to do something or not. And I guess phone coaching is even, you can't even see them, so the cues are even way lesser, right? So do you have any verbal check-ins to know if, like, you know, they are going to do it, or you know, you should like move, switch gear to give some easier, quote-unquote, advice? Yeah, I I think you can just sort of tell, you know, you can sort of tell how they're feeling if they're feeling frustrated or if they're feeling excited about it. Uh, I mean, I think honestly, it's a lot of the same skills I learned about and I learned in pickup where you can really understand where someone is in the conversation mentally and emotionally, which I, is a skill I had zero of prior to that. And so even in coaching, like, I, I think I, I have a better idea of why people are saying what they're saying or why they're saying it in the tone that they're saying it in. This is a lot of like contextual like information and like, like one wouldn't know like what we're talking about unless one really goes into the deep end of the pool and and give a lot of advice and have a lot of people not following it. And then like, oh, okay, like... For sure. Yeah, I mean, when I first started, I think my success rate... At, so one of the ways I judge myself is on the first call, I'm going to give somebody some assignments, one to maybe five maximum. And then we're going to see if they did them in the first month. And I always, from the very beginning, I try to scale it so that they're going to do it. You know, I don't want to give them five impossible things. In the beginning, I would say that maybe 10 or 20% of people would actually do everything they said they were going to do. In my, in my most recent batch, every single person did everything they said they were going to do. And my last in-person coaching thing, we did a one and a half month or no, three month follow-up. Everybody did everything they said they were going to do. And so and so it's it's really something I've, I've improved on a lot. Um, give advice for the other person, not for you. Uh, give advice in smaller chunks if they're not excited uh, and uh, look for cues. Um, Any other misconception uh, and things people should look out for? I think also make sure somebody has actually asked, either make sure they've asked you for advice or, you know, there, I'd say there's like five to 10 people in my life who, whether we've expressed it or not, there's a clear understanding that we can give advice, even like harsh critical advice at any kind, at any time. And it's going to be well-received. So maybe you have people like that in your life. I think maybe most people might have somebody in their life like that, at least. Um, So I think, but, you know, there's nothing more annoying than when you meet some new person at a party or something and they start giving you it. I remember I met this guy on a cruise. He like randomly sat at our table and he's like, oh, you have a cruise business. That's really interesting. Well, here's some things I would do. I'm like, I don't care. Like, you don't know anything about the cruise business. Like, this is your first cruise. Like, 
irrelevant, right? And I hated this guy because of this, because he spent an hour trying to give me cruise advice, and I'm very politely trying to shut it down and change the topic. So make sure that somebody has asked for advice, or it's somebody you have that kind of relationship where it's it's known that you share advice like that. So basically, by default, do not give advice until the person expressed interest. You can ask them if you want to if you want advice because you have prior experience, but make sure you have an easy, give them a super easy out. Yeah. And, and the first step of giving advice to is understanding the other person. I, I think it's very easy, especially when, you know, like I said, you people give advice for themselves more than other people sometimes. So you can just ask them questions to understand their position more. And often that'll lead naturally to giving advice. You're like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I was in a similar position. Like, oh, what'd you do? Now you're in that mode. Okay, cool. So um, one of the advice you give is to, uh, instead of going to school, you tell people, I mean, it's one of the things, that, among many things that you've given us, to, for people to go learn to play poker. And by playing poker, you actually get to earn like $60 an hour. Like, I, in my mind, I can't fathom that. But uh, maybe it requires some explanation. What What are you thinking when you say that? Well, so I, I haven't, I think I haven't played a hand of poker in three or four years, maybe, or maybe three years. So caveat that my, my advice might be outdated, but I kind of don't think it is. Um, I, I think the big principle is that I think school is massively obsolete at this point. I think it's, it's especially given the value. If school was free, I could see the argument for many of the people going to school now to continue to go. I don't think it's worthless or anything. Um, but given the cost of school, I think it's a tremendously poor value for, uh, yeah, I don't know the stats, but I guess at least half or more of people who go. And I think for sure there's a better path for a lot of people, in particular people who tend to read my stuff, people who are a little more independent, uh, a little more self-motivated. So I gave poker in the post you're talking about, I gave poker as an example because it's something that any smart person can start with teach themselves, or even they can hire people for far less than school and their earning potential is immediately higher, right? Just to sort of illustrate that there are better examples than college. Um, and so in that post, I think it was called Hustlers MBA, I just sort of wrote a list of like, if you do these five things, it's much cheaper than school, it'll take less time and your outcome is going to be better. But there's actually, I don't, I don't think many my goal isn't for people to do exactly that. It's for people to come up with their own thing rather than just do what everybody else does. What is the 80-20 there, you know, for if you if someone say, hey, you know, I saw the Hustle MBA, I, I really want to learn this poker thing. You know, what, uh, how do you, how will you give them advice? Yeah, so it's actually, it's a lot easier than dating. So uh, I, I play a game called Limit Hold'em, which is like No Limit, but slightly different, different strategy. Um, I don't know that it's the best. I don't. I don't know enough about all the current poker's available to know that it's the best thing to learn. So it may not be. Um, it's certainly a dying game of poker that you can't play in a lot of places. So I always played in person. I've almost. I've played very little online. Uh, if you want to play uh, limit hold'em, a good player can make one and a half to two times the size of the big blind. So you know, there's. 10, 20, 15, 30, 20, 40, 30, 60, 40, 80. Those are all common uh, denominations of poker. So in any of those, you could make one and a half to two times the bigger number there. So the place to start is a book called uh, uh, Winning Low Limit Hold'em by a guy named Lee Jones. Fantastic book. That's how my friends and I all learned. Um, 
uh, if once you read that, you should read Small Stakes Hold'em. I think it's by Sklansky. Uh, if you just read and comprehend and internalize those two books, they're both kind of like beginner books. If you just learn those, at least based on last time I played poker, you will be a winning poker player. Um, you'll, you know, and my friends and I, we all, that's the path we all took. We had uh, tracking things on our phone. So you could see that curve of like, I'm losing, I'm losing, I'm leveling off. Now I make money every time, not every time, but every month or so. So yeah, so it's pretty easy. You just do those two books. And so like, what is the amount like you, a person should set out, you know, a financial amount just I just level the playing curve. That's a dip, right? And then the time, I guess. You know, it could be different for everybody. Uh, when I first started tracking, I had some background in poker. Like I knew how to play, but I hadn't played in 10 years. Um, and I played every night. So I was like, you know, I was into it. I was spending time. I think maybe at my lowest, I was down a few thousand bucks. And maybe after a month and a half, two months, I was making money. Uh, I think for some other friends who didn't have a poker background, it took a little longer, but maybe also the dip was about the same, I would say. Maybe they stayed in the dip a little longer. I don't know. 5,000, would you say, is a good, good good time and a good amount? I'd say, yeah. I mean, again, this is sort of outdated information, but that's my recollection. Um, you write for a long, long time. What does writing mean to you these days? And why do you still write? Yeah, well, now, I mean, the, uh, the honest answer is because I've been writing for 15 years or 18 years. I don't even know how long it is. So I can't ever get, I can't keep, I, you know, I probably at this point cannot ever quit my blog. Um, I also feel like, for one, I've benefited tremendously from my blog in countless, you know, countless ways. So part of it is I'd like to continue to benefit from my blog. And then the other part is I feel a debt of gratitude. You know, a lot of my readers have been reading for 10 years, five years, 15 years. So, uh, you know, I, I care about their success and, and care about share, you know, who doesn't want to share stuff with people who appreciate it. So, you know, so I, I benefit that way. Uh, I might be done writing books. I feel like at this point, the cost benefit of writing books, especially in terms of like how many new things I'm dying to write, uh, has gone to where it's no longer at the top of my list. But I've also kind of thought that before and written more books. So who knows? Uh, yeah, so I'd say that that's where I'm at with writing. I like I like writing. I, I think it's a really valuable skill for almost anybody to have. Um, it helps me compose my thoughts. It helps me think things through a little bit more thoroughly because I know they're going to be subject to at least some scrutiny. Uh, yeah. Also, I like just knowing I have to write. It makes me think like makes me look for interesting things in life and thoughts. So that's valuable to me. What are uh, what is the benefits of writing books actually? Now that I mean, you have you have a blog and you write weekly, right? Yeah, for books, I mean, for a time it was really good for me financially because it allowed me a lot of years of living. You know, like even if I only made one thousand to three thousand for you know average per month for a few years, that was enough for me to live in my RV. And so it was cool that I could front load all the effort. And then just not worry about money for years. So, so financially, that was good. Uh, for me, mentally, I just felt like, especially with like the habit book and the social skills book, I just had so many thoughts about it and I could never get in that much depth in blogging. And so it was almost cathartic to like write my big outline for my book, get it all in one place, find the connections between things that maybe I hadn't realized before, and just to sort of get it out. So if people are like, hey, what should I do with social skills? I'm like, funny you asked. Here's every single thing I know about it. Uh, 
so I guess part of why I don't have any books planned now is I don't have any topics that are like are like that for me right now. Right. And do, and and it seems like you write a lot, but I don't see you recommending books. So do you actually do you have a do you read much? Not like I used to. I used to read. I basically had a couple years where I read. I think one year I read a hundred books in a year. The next year I read seventy books in a year, and they were all books that were really highly recommended to me. So they were like excellent books. And a lot of them were from Derek Sivers book list. He has like an, I've read almost, you know, so many of the books on his, his list, uh, the high rated ones. And it kind of ruined reading for me because I read just, I, I had like two years of reading 10 out of 10 books. And since then I've really struggled to consistently find great books. So I have like on my Kindle, I have so many books that are like a third of the way through, 50% of the way through that I'm like, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I read most days or, you know, every week, I would say, but I'm not churning through books like I used to. Yeah. And so, like, right now you just picked up, like, uh, 3D uh, printing, right? Um, yeah. Okay, so I wonder if this question is split two ways or it's, like, the same question altogether, which is how do you choose project or how do you choose obsessions? I think I don't choose either of them at all yeah yeah they're the same and i i think i don't i think i give myself a very wide latitude to just do whatever i want to do and part of that is that like i've trained myself to not want to play video games and eat jelly beans you know what i mean like like if i if if that's what i want to do all day i would change what my rules were for myself but through many many years of like self-improvement and discipline and all that i really only enjoy doing things that are good for me to do essentially or mostly you know good for me to do so for example if i'm going to learn 3d printing it's not like oh i'm going to start a business that requires 3d printing but i'm like okay if i learn this i'm going to have to learn how to do 3d cad modeling that's interesting probably applicable to other stuff probably enjoy it i'll learn about it's the first time i've made anything physical other than carpentry so like there's enough good stuff that like i know it's probably going to be beneficial and even if it's not okay, I'm under quarantine. Like there's a reason I didn't let myself do it till I was under quarantine. You know what I mean? So, so it's like, you know, my bar has definitely lowered for quarantine of like, what's going to be a good use of time. Also, cause I have months, like I'm not going to become an expert in 3d printing in a week, but in a few months I could, you know, at this point I probably am. I've reprinted my entire printer essentially. So wait, did you? Uh, really? <laughs> I mean, that's one of the, it's one of the jokes in 3d printing is that like, you spend about 5% of your time printing stuff and 95% of your time upgrading your printer. And that's been true for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of people in general are he more hesitant to go down these rabbit holes because they think it has to make some sort of sense. I, I don't think about it at all, really. I just think like, I'm interested. It's not a complete waste of time. Let's see where it goes. And I'll trust myself to course correct. Well, I think also like, uh, like your mindset is very different because like you have sort of gained enough financial that you think like you ever need in your life, right? So then you're not trading uh, time for money anymore. You have sort of like this other way of thinking about time. And one of the questions I have, which is a lot of people have come to this um, sort of life stage is that they hit this point where they're like, oh, I, I think I have enough money. Like, what the fuck? Do you went through that? And you know, what, you know, how... Walk me through the emotional journey um, when you hit that stage or realize you, you hit that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the difference is I felt that way before I had any money. 
once I knew that I had enough skills that I could always support myself, I had enough money. I mean, I wanted more money then. I want more money now, right? It's it's like it's a complicated relationship. But I mean, sometime in high school, I felt like I had enough. You know what I mean? So, you know, I do see people who they hit hit a certain amount and they're like, great, I can retire. I, and it's this abrupt change. For me, it it wasn't it wasn't really like that. So. I remember very early on realizing, I mean, probably high school or somewhere around there, realizing I would rather be homeless than have a real job. And I, and I specifically, this is when I, I guess I know when it was, it was in 1998. I went to Hawaii for the first time. I saw people camping on the beach, which I didn't realize at the time. It's only if you're Hawaiian, you're allowed to do it, but I thought everybody was allowed to do it. And I thought, all right, well, if I make $0 and I'm totally homeless, I'll somehow find a way to fly to Hawaii and I'll live on the beach. I would rather do that than do some crappy like file papers for an insurance company or something job. So like I knew what I wanted very young and that made it easy to where like I was like, okay, well, I have enough because I'm not at a job. Like to me, it wasn't do I have enough money. It's like I have enough because I have enough control over my time. So I was just playing by sort of different rules or different standards pretty, pretty young. As I've made more money, it's, you know, it's changed to where like, okay, now, I mean, my wife works, but like, I'm like, okay, now I could support my wife if I needed to. Everything I do that makes money could stop making money and I could not make more money and I would still be fine. Like my lifestyle is now like a zillion times cooler than it was back then. And I could maintain that with no money. So, you know, for sure, like there's been other waypoints, but I think those waypoints matter a lot less then the first one you have where you realize like i'm done like i got it i've got everything i need in life i'm good okay. i think a lot of, uh, when a lot of people hit that point is like an abrupt uh, a thing right um and one of the big questions people ask is well like well, what the hell do i do <laughs> you know and and they start going out this like deep rabbit holes and one of the rabbit holes is oh what is the meaning of life how do you think about that question and do you even think of it at all? I, I just don't care what the meaning of life is to be like. It just it's it to me it's an irrelevant question. It's like, is there a meaning of life? Is it knowable by us? Probably not, but maybe. You know what I mean? Like maybe. But what we know for sure is that we have life. We're here. Just from sitting in a chair in a room, you can derive infinite pleasure essentially, right? Just within your own mind, thinking about the how incredible life is. So if that's where you're starting, why do you need a meaning to life? Yeah, I don't know. I've never, I've never felt like I needed a meaning to life. I think I just love life so much. It, that's enough for me. Fair, fair. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, 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 I want to dig in a little bit more because you also get good at giving advice, right? Some of your friends who sort of hit that um, place abruptly, I guess, like what kind of stuff do you think they go through and what sort of advice do you would come to you? Hey, Tainan, like, you seem to be living this great life. I'm like, you know, kind of like done with business. Like, how should I think about it? I'm just sort of like swirling in, in emotions or like, I don't know what I'm like swimming in. How do I orientate myself? What do you, what will you tell them? Yeah, I mean, I think most people, I don't know, a lot of people get their value or their self-worth from the money they make and their career. Right. If you ask somebody, tell me about yourself, 
they talk about their career first and basically everybody everything anybody does is try to signal how much money they have you know what i mean so these are like fundamental pieces or at least men typically but fundamental pieces of who people are and i think once those things become irrelevant people feel like they lose their relevancy and they don't know who they are anymore um i also think as a society we think it's bad to be bored or we think it's you know it's bad to kind of be in this position where you're in a vacuum, you don't know what to do next. And it seems like you're doing something wrong, especially if you're a high achiever, you've probably been told like, Hey, don't sit around work, do something, make more. So I think it's a big shift. And I, you know, I don't know that there's an easy way to make that shift. You know, sometimes, you know, if you shift from gear 10 to gear one, it's going to be abrupt. You're going to, you know, you're going to jolt the car or the truck. So I think the number one thing people need to do is just allow themselves to get bored, allow themselves the freedom to waste time, waste time, which probably isn't really wasting time anyway. And, you know, don't think about the meaning of life. Think about what's important to you, whether it's saving the dolphins, whether it's your family, whether it's, uh, you know, learning what, you know, it could be any, whether it's learning to make the best, you know, snow cone, like it could be anything. I actually think what makes this world great is that so many people have so many different priorities. I don't think there should be a meaning of life that we're all going for. I love that some guy's most important thing in life is making a replica of a Pan Am 747 in his basement. That's my worst nightmare. I would hate to do that, but I'm really glad that he does it because it, you know, it adds to the diversity of, of experience in, in, in the world. So I think people need to give themselves, especially when you've been on that narrow track of achievement and success, I think you need to give yourself some latitude and, and not judge yourself for years, probably three to five years. Wow. Cool. All right. Uh, we're going to dive into some quick um, question. The answer doesn't need to be quick. I'm just going to, it's just a standard uh, bunch of questions that I pass. Um, okay. What are, what are uh, the best gifts that you have received um, or have you given someone um, the last five years? Wow. Uh, I would say maybe it's a kind of boring answer, but you know, my friends and I all being sort of nomadic don't tend to have a lot of stuff or, you know, so we don't give each other stuff or, 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 but we always give each other great tea when we go to, uh, when we go to like a tea city or a new tea house, we always bring each other tea. And so some of my friends have given me just like amazing tea and, and, and I, I enjoy that. Favorite tea house in the world. Oh, good one. Uh, Joe in Budapest. I love that tea. It's, it's the number one perfect place to me. Okay. Well, um, five tools um, that you have bought recently that you know you you really love. Oh, okay. So, three D printer for sure is one. Uh, what is the is model? One. And uh... so, I, I don't know that it's the right one to buy. I, I it's, it's it's a uh, no, it's just the one that you bought. Maker Ultimate. I think probably Creality is the right one. I just I didn't want to do the research. I was like, I know nothing, so any of them is going to be good for me. It actually is a pretty good one, but. Uh, I'll tell you another item I got. It's just happened right. to be in front of me is a decent quality caliper, digital caliper for uh -huh. measuring stuff for 3D printing. I love this thing. Uh, at first, I bought the cheapest, crappiest one. And then it was like annoying enough to use that I bought this good one. And now I totally love it. What brand um, is it? <laughs> uh, it's a, I think it's just like it's probably some Chinese knockoff. It's Satyric, S-A-T-T-I-Y-R-C-H. The key is Got that it. it does hundreds of millimeters and it's metal and it has this little roller thing up here so that you can adjust very small amounts 
Ah. It's really making my life. It's making my life very easy. Uh, what other tools have I bought recently? Oh, I I bought. Uh, are they around here somewhere? No. Uh, I bought scrub brushes that attach to a power drill. So for like cleaning, I, I, I got it to clean clean our boat, but I'm gonna use it for the bathtub and all this other stuff. Uh, I think those are those are the three I can think of, off, off the top of my head. Like sandpaper to send stuff, but it's like a brush, so you could like hot clean your floor or your boat. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's a good. Idea. I, I really hate and, cleaning, so I like anything that change that makes it easier for me to clean. Another thing to use for your um. Um, your cleaning too is that they uh, some people use that for massage. I just tried that for the first time. I don't like massages, so it does nothing for me. Yeah, just it just felt like I was getting sanded. <laughs> favorite uh, favorite uh, movie or documentary uh, in the last uh, three years? Uh, I watch almost no movies, and I really don't even watch very many documentaries. Uh, yeah, I don't have one. Sorry. Okay. Uh, most underrated uh, any underrated bloggers that you recommend that should have more rec- uh, recognition uh, I don't read many bloggers I don't know uh, I just don't read much to be like I, I read whatever's on Hacker News or, or Reddit I know I feel like it's, it's kind of a, I'm kind of a hypocrite but I feel like a lot of my favorite bloggers don't write anymore or don't write like they used to yeah um Worst advice that you see or hear being dispensed in your world? Uh, uh, I feel like there's a lot of different stock advice that people have these days. I ignore all of it, but I feel like these days all my friends have some opinion on whether you should be buying into the market or selling. Uh, yeah, a lot of that. Oh, why? Why any bet for you? Uh, well, I just feel like no. You know, I tend to believe that the stock market is accurately priced, and so I don't think anybody knows any more than anybody else, basically. Okay, if you can go back in time and have um, 20, okay, 30 seconds with your 20-year-old self and 30-year-old self, right? Um, what would you tell uh, him and place us where you're at uh, and when you're 20 and 30? Ooh, probably a boring answer, but I don't think I would do it. I think, I mean, depends. I just think my life is so good right now that... It's a and it's a product of things I've done well, but it's also a product of things I've done poorly. And so while I can think of things that I would tell my like, hey, buy you know buy Bitcoin, like you can tell there's some obvious things like that. Maybe that would have changed my life, you know, in a, in a in a worse way. So given how happy I am with my life, I think I wouldn't change anything. But you know, it doesn't mean it couldn't be better. I just wouldn't take the risk. Three pieces of advice for people who want to be happy. There's really only one, which is just be happy. I think everybody's always looking for something to make them happy. And in my experience, it's it, just like social skills. It's something most people don't think that you can learn, but you can learn to make yourself happy. And the majority of it is just how you perceive the world. In any given day, in any month, there's enough in your day to either make you ridiculously happy or ridiculously depressed. Uh, even just see how people react to the coronavirus stuff. You could see people who I know people who are thrilled because they get to, you know, they're taking advantage of it. Not thrilled that people are dying, but you know, they're taking advantage of the situation. You know, the, the free time and you know, reconnecting, whatever. And then there's other people who are miserable and think the world's going to end. So I, I think that people are always looking for something to make themselves happy versus learning the skills to make themselves happy at all times. 
Got it. Um, when you think of the word successful, who came into your mind and why? I guess, I don't know. Derek Sivers sort of came into my mind. I guess the acts from the show Billions came into my mind. I don't know. You know, I think you can you can dice it up a lot of different ways. I mean, I would consider basically all of my friends successful on, you know, some metric, if not many metrics. But uh, uh, why um, is that so? Uh, I, I think for me, success is somebody who wins according to their own goals, right? So I think that's why I sort of can think of many like disparate versions of success, right? Like, I don't know if you watch Billions, but the guy in it is basically only successful in the financial way. Almost everything else is not good for him. So yeah, but but he's succeeded because he got what he wanted. So I, I like when people have succeeded uh, according to their own goals. Uh, and I think that those are the kind of people I tend to make friends with too. So yeah. Yeah, and by default, they're they're, they're happy because you know they're achieving their own goals that they set up for. It. Exactly, and and very often when you're trying to achieve other people's goals or society's goals, you're start you know you're at least starting off unhappy by default. You have it's a hurdle you have to overcome. So. Uh, two more questions. Uh, any routines or habits that you find important? Uh, morning or evening routines? Uh, for me, drinking tea every morning is important. I mean, I think it is. Maybe I took. Maybe if I took it out, everything would be just exactly the same. I don't know. You know, I, I think a lot of my take on a lot of this stuff is you do a lot of healthy habits, and in the end, you feel great, and you're not really sure which ones, if any, really mattered. So. Uh, I like to think that tea matters. I like to think that uh, working out every other day matters. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Uh, I eat the same thing every single day. That definitely matters because it gives me so much free time and I don't have to think about it, so I like that. Uh, I just started doing sauna every day. Jury's out on that one, but I, other people tell me that matters, so I guess we'll find out. Okay. Um, what Any upcoming projects that people can look forward to? And then I guess uh, we'll end off with uh, the places where you can find you on the internet. Uh, yeah, so maybe some maybe some projects coming up. I've got a couple ideas of quarantine projects. I'm I'm exploring a few things that I'm not telling anybody yet, but uh, but I've got some things coming up. Okay, uh, and I guess uh, lastly, Twitter, uh, Tainan.com, your website, anywhere else that you want people to check you out. Uh, yeah, mainly just Tynan.com. Uh, and then yeah, Instagram is at Tynan.com, I think. <laughs> All right, man. Look, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this, uh... Hey, folks. It's over. Well, as usual, all show notes, links, books can be found on the website, brianvictor.com, Brian for why. And really, for those of you out there, you know, going through some hard times, my heart go out for all of you guys. And, you know, if there's anything I can help you with, please feel free to drop me an email. And again, thank you so much for giving me your time and listening to this episode. I hope you have a fantastic week ahead.